The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my host, John Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Um, how we doing, buddy? Um, doing stupendously well. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's good. Uh, I don't, I've rounded into cycling form at the absolute wrong time of year. <laughs> <laughs> as evidenced by the fresh coat of snow on the ground here this morning oh my gosh uh, yeah i had a great ride yesterday one of those like oh i think i can go forever kind of rides uh and then snow started to fall so that's you know that's <laughs> life and that's on me yeah uh, yeah i mean it's december 9th it's on that's on me um have you considered cyclocross um i'm gonna take that as a no no <laughs> no <laughs> no three three hours of woods wandering is much better to me than 45 minutes of uh trying not to vomit <laughs> <laughs> i yeah i i i can no judgment that <laughs> yes uh some of the some of the best times of my life have been 45 minutes or, or maybe just a half an hour of trying not to vomit uh yeah <clears throat> yeah uh how are these other people so going so fast that's that's the predominant cyclocross thought for me yeah yeah it's funny i really wasn't even thinking about cyclocross at all until earlier this week, friends of mine started posting photos from a, a race last weekend. I hadn't even heard mm. about the race. I, oh. It's like I didn't even realize it was cyclocross season. I mean, of course, I know it's cyclocross season, but I, yeah. I wasn't aware that there were any races happening or anything. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a little hunkered down in my bunker again. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I have a steady diet of cyclocross uh, coming across my uh, social media transom. <laughs> I'm, I'm keenly aware of what my fitter friends are up to. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the other things. It's like, oh, people are standing on the podium. Hmm. I haven't even been on a bike this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have, I do, I have clocked some good bike time, but I'm... Um, I don't know what the maximum distance from a podium is. <laughs> there should be a term for that. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, the back of the pack would be one of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, when, when I'm at a cyclocross race, I look around and I think all of these people are schlubs, including me, but some of them are really fast schlubs. <laughs> yeah, um, a, a dedicated schlub is a thing to be reckoned with. Or a person to be reckoned so. with, uh, not to yeah. depersonalize. 
<laughs> no, definitely and for sure. <laughs> All righty. Well, what are you talking about this week? Uh, this week I'm talking about getting high. Uh, I, I know a so thing for or me, two about you. <laughs> yeah, so that means something different for me than it does for most folks. I don't drink or do drugs as a rule because I can't. Uh, which is to say it just doesn't go well for me. Um, and when I, when I got myself sober some decades ago now, I went through a period of being very judgy about drugs and alcohol and, you know, the people that pursued those things. Mm -hmm. And that, that judginess has since faded. I mean, I think I just needed to, for myself, I just needed to reject those things fully in order to keep myself in a safe mental space. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm not, I, you know, I'm much more comfortable with who I am, uh, finally or, uh, eventually. Um, so now I don't care really that much what people do to get along with their lives. Uh Um, you know, everybody, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, and that, but that brings me to cycling, uh, which is good because this is still a cycling podcast, I think. And, um, more so than revolting. So more so than revolting. Yes. (laughs) listen to revolting (laughs) thursdays or wednesday or tuesday sometimes it's on a day of the week every other week except when we put it out weekly um uh at the moment i'm not high but yesterday i i was high at least in the last best way that's available to me which is um uh when i do a good hard ride in cold weather and then chase that with a hot cup of coffee. Uh-huh. So the res- there's a resulting euphoria there that's as close to chemically altered as I get anymore. And I I wonder if people experience that the way I do. I mean, I don't like this isn't the runner's high. Mm-hmm. Uh this is like the runner's high squared. <laughs> uh-huh. I went out with some friends yesterday, and as I said, we did a few hours of, I, I guess I'd call it semi-technical, single-track therapy, uh, followed quickly by 16 ounces of hot, bitter coffee and a pastry. And by the time I got to the shower, I was so buzzing with positive energy. My wife was like, why are you talking so much? <laughs> <laughs> For me... For me, that works best in colder weather because when it's warmer, I tend to dehydrate to some extent, and that makes it necessary for me to, um, you know, pound electrolytes as a more obvious choice than hot or even iced coffee. But still, a long, hot physical effort followed by iced coffee and maybe a cold swim, that's pretty neurochemically affecting also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you can't get the cold swim, a cold shower, I know you and I have talked about cold showers on the show before. Uh, you are anti and I am pro. Uh, but I'm I'm curious, without delving too deeply into your own drug preferences, recreational or therapeutic, I'm wondering, is, is this a thing that you experience in your riding life? Oh, unquestionably. It's no secret here that uh, in dealing with uh, longstanding depression, uh, I went into treatment with psychedelics uh ketamine and to some degree psilocybin so that's a you know traditionally relative to our culture that's a little non-standard um and i know it is disquieting to some people here's the thing about that um 
cycling is what opened me up to the possibility of even looking at uh, dealing with depression with psychedelics um, <clears throat> because it was uh, it was in trying to write about what a spiritual experience descending could be for me long descents in the mountains. Um, and I went on a, a, a real, uh, sort of journey, a search in terms of reading, looking for, uh, things that could help me to explain why I got so much out of that experience of going fast on a technical descent. Um, and eventually I ran across a book that I've mentioned here before, West of Jesus by Stephen Kotler. It's a book about surfing, but it was the first book that ever broke down the neuroscience underpinning flow states. And that's when I realized, oh, when I go fast as hell and rail a turn, by the time I get to the bottom, I've got dopamine, serotonin, anandamide, uh, endorphins and norepinephrine just coursing through my system. And once I started to look at, well, what happens in the brain? What are the things that are taking place? What are the neurochemicals that are being released? And when you start to understand that, uh, well, uh, some of these things like, uh, psilocin from psilocybin, that plugs into the serotonin receptor. We're built to do these things. And so once I was able to remove the, the traditionally moralistic, you know, don't do drugs sort of thing and look at the way that some very intelligent people were using these things to deal with depression, my view of what it means to be high was pretty radically altered. Um, in a certain sort of way, I don't even talk about getting high. I don't, uh, that's, that's not how I think of it or talk about it. Right. I'm being glib when I yeah. talk about getting high in this way. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, when I started to think about, well, what hangs in the balance here? Uh, how important is it for me to find a constructive way to, you know, adjust my emotional state? Um, <clears throat> people talk about self-medicating and I think that, uh, it has come to be a sort of, uh, pejorative, uh, that mm. we often use. We, we kind of put it down. Um, it's as if, you know, if a doctor prescribes it, it's perfectly okay. And if we know that this thing works for us and gets us to a better mental place, we're just self-medicating. We're, we're papering over the problem. And, you know, I've come to reject that idea. I guess the thing that I've realized is I'm not using any of this to run from problems. I, I see these things, writing, ketamine, you know, whatever it is we're talking about. I see them all as ways to approach what it, what it is I need to be a healthier person. Yeah, I think I the way I view it is that there are a limited number of levers I can pull to uh, find the sort of peace of mind and contentment I need to move forward in my life. And so I pull the levers that are available to me to pull. 
Yeah. You know, if anything, I have a fear that I'll run out of levers, <laughs> that it's, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that at some point circumstances overwhelm you and, um, well, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. I no longer look at the lever as good or bad. What I look at as good right. or bad is the way the lever or the, the reason behind the lever being pulled. Are you trying to escape from something or are you trying to be the best person you can be in that hour? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I brought it up around riding specifically because I have this subtle fear born out of, uh, you know, the experience of breaking my collarbone and, you know, I'm dealing with Achilles tendonitis right now, like basically all the aging body issues Mm -hmm. because I'm at it most of the time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I worry that like a, a serious injury takes away that lever that I get to pull, Mm -hmm. you know, a hard ride and a cup of coffee uh, and then I'm like, okay, well, what lever comes after that one? I'm not entirely, I'm not always sure. I know that there are other options. I'm not, um, you know, this isn't, I'm not panicking here, but I, I, um, this is sort of a, a winky wink celebration of the neurochemical cocktail that comes from riding, but also, yeah, an acknowledgement that, um, if you can't find those peaceful places in your mind, if you can't find the positivity and optimism that comes out of that that neurochemical experience, then it is it can be very difficult to do the things you need to do in your life. Yeah. You know, one of the things that really bugs me, and I guess it's one of the reasons that I've so focused on this uh, in my writing in the last, you know, 10 years or so, uh, actually, even even longer uh, is that, you know, the average psych non-cyclist doesn't really understand what I believe to be the greatest benefit that we get from riding. Um, having a healthy body is nice, but not being a jerk uh, is that's a, that's a much bigger payoff. <laughs> Um, I think it's all tied up together. And I think that a lot of the benefits people get from cycling are they're not aware of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Um, oh, yeah. Raising awareness has certainly been a big piece of what I've been after. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. You go out for rides, you know, daily, semi-daily, something like that. And, you know, you end up with if you're not injured, you know, you end up with a a happier, healthier you in terms of, you know, your, your, uh, your fitness, your body. I don't know that those benefits extend very far beyond you, but the mental peace that comes from going out for a hard ride and coming back with that afterglow of yes, um, Mm. that pays dividends that can reach, you know, deeply into your family, into your work life, uh, into the community around you. Um, so I, I see the payoff there as being so much more powerful. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's not just the, um, you know, the apex of the high, so to speak. Like when I'm three sips into the cup of coffee, <laughs> uh, it's not just that apex, but it's the equanimity that uh, trails after it. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, that keeps me from snapping at people at the grocery store who, let's be honest, are doing things worthy of being snapped at. <laughs> Well, we, you mentioned flow states a little. I think we're going to get to flow states. Yeah. Uh, oddly enough, uh, I'm going to circle back on this in uh, just a minute. So we'll take a break and uh, then I'll, I'll do mine. The Pace Line is brought to you by The Cycling Independent. We are the only online cycling publication that's entirely reader supported with absolutely no advertiser, sponsor, or investor commitments influencing our editorial. We don't have a sales team or middle management. It's just the three founders and a collection of talented and committed contributors who independently produce our content. To maintain our commitment to honest, reader-focused editorial with the best writers in the business, we need your help. Every dollar that comes in goes directly toward creating the content you see. A subscription is cheap, easy, and it goes a heck of a long way. Just go to cyclingindependent.com, click on support TCI, and choose your level. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Time for your pull, Patrick. Yeah, so as we were saying, we're, we're both talking about flow and the neuroscience that underpins it this week. And no, everybody, we didn't actually coordinate that ahead of time. <laughs> Generally, when I am talking about flow, I, I'm focusing on the magic part of it, the, the we, as we called it, in my feature for bicycling. Um, what I haven't tended to talk about, uh, at least much, uh, is that in achieving flow, there are four rather distinct phases or stages in flow. They are struggle, relaxation, then flow, of course. And finally, consolidation. And, you know, it, it's a little bit like uh, flow is the dessert. Um, but growing up in my household, you didn't get to have dessert if you didn't eat, you know, the, the turkey and the vegetables and your applesauce. Um, mm -hmm. And so struggle, relax relaxation and consolidation are all really important. Um so the basic idea is that there's an arc to every flow experience. Um, you know, for me or for anybody for that matter, you know, I'll begin with something that's difficult. You know, if I'm out to find flow, I want to find something that's just hard enough to feel like I'm not good at it. Uh, whatever that is. <clears throat> so maybe taking it, making my first descent of the day, a really technical one where I don't, I don't really feel in the groove just yet. Uh, um, and it needs to be hard enough or challenging enough that you sort of question whether or not you should even be out there. Like, you know, maybe I'll come back a different day when I'm better at this. Um, right. Th it, that's truly an important part of it. The next phase is, is relaxation, and that's where we start to settle in. Um, very often, this means backing off the difficulty 
a bit. So, like I said, mountain biking, I'll tackle uh, a really difficult descent um, at just the fastest pace I can. Fast enough that I kind of struggle. I'm not smooth. And then either I'll, I'll slow down on the next one or I'll find a trail that's a little bit easier that I know better or, and can ride smoother. And it's in that moment when I finally feel I've found my groove that I'll drop into flow. And then the final stage, once we've had the we, uh, is consolidation. And that's where our newfound ability gets imprinted on our gray matter. So there are two pieces to this. One is what I've often referred to as the afterglow. You know, you get to the bottom of that descent and just soak in what fun that was. Playing the experience back in your head in as vivid detail as possible not only aids your memory of the experience, but it begins that process of consolidation. The other piece is, well, getting a good sound sleep that night, uh, uh, trying to get as close to eight hours. Um, that's where memory consolidation happens. Uh, if you're only sleeping four hours, you're not getting good memory consolidation. Um, and you know, you can think of this in terms of all the times that you went to bed with some thorny problem that you were rolling over in your head and that you woke up the next morning and went, wait, I, no, I totally got this. I know what I need to do. That's the result of memory consolidation. Um, but because struggle is what I have discussed least when it comes to flow, I thought I'd give a little example, <laughs> something that I've been dealing with. So some weeks back, I shared how I was having trouble bleeding the Shimano GRX brakes on my Allied Echo. I'd go out for a ride and the brakes would seem fine, only to pick the bike up the next morning and notice that the brakes were spongy again. Uh, so this past weekend, I figured, well... I'm going to really devote myself to bleeding these brakes as completely as possible, um, as if I hadn't already tried to do that. Bleeding disc brakes, because it's not something I ever had to do in a bike shop setting, is something that I've never felt as competent doing as I do other stuff, like, you know, adjusting shifting. Um, I certainly read plenty of tips for little checks to make sure that all the air is out of the line, but I can't say they were a fluid part of my routine. Once I really dug into the brakes and took my time, which is to say Saturday morning, I went downstairs at nine o'clock in the morning uh, and just said, I'm, I'm staying here until this rear brake is finished. Actually, I said, I'm staying <laughs> here until they're both finished. Turns out I only got through the rear that one day. Uh, <laughs> it was as if the line was injected with foam, I swear. Um, but, you know, I found that there was way more air in both lines than I thought was even possible. Um, there came, you know, I, for a while I was just so frustrated. But there came a point when I finally accepted what I was seeing and began to process it in a way, you know, this is what I'm learning about what's going on inside this break. And I got my ego out of the way of my patience and at that point relaxed. Yeah, I relaxed. And once I relaxed upon figuring out what I was seeing, I did enter flow. Time just completely slipped away from me, which is how I ended up spending like six hours in the garage. Uh, uh, 
And it happened for me both Saturday and Sunday, which is to say that Sunday was all about the front break. Um, uh, would it have been easier to open up the break and just start over pumping in fresh fluid? Yes. But I wanted the lesson that would come with that struggle. I wanted to understand uh, more intimately what it means to bleed a break well. Uh, and so in a certain sort of way, this this poll is as much about <laughs> technically working on bikes as it is flow. Um, but it was that, you know, it was getting my ego and my p- impatience out of the way and just being there in the moment with that break. And the more I looked at it, the more I was able to understand of like, well, if I'm going to use gravity to my advantage, you know, not only do I have to have the bike upside down for this break, um, I need to make sure that I keep turning the handlebar so that those bubbles don't get locked in this corner of the handlebar. You know, sure, they flowed out of the lever, but they're probably getting caught in this little crook here before they can make it to the stem and on up. Um, and so I figured, you know, this isn't a matter of like self-punishment. I, I had this belief that if I simply spent my time with the break, uh, breaks and just watched what was happening and just took in the information that was coming out of that and was patient um, that I'd learn a lot about bleeding breaks and all those little tips that I would read and forget or uh, never really do right. I've got it. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say that both those breaks now don't have a single bubble of air in them. Uh, <laughs> I probably took 10 minutes with each break after I'd seen the last bubble continuing to tap and turn and roll and all this stuff. Um, But the thing is, you know, the upshot is now that uh, I feel so much more comfortable working on disc brakes. To be sure, that's a really (laughs) minor victory. I won't (laughs) say it's Pyrrhic, but it is as victories go. Um, you know, there's there's not even a, uh, a space on the podium for it. <laughs> right. But uh, it it made me really value the struggle portion of finding flow and uh, developing, a I think, a fresh sort of respect for that um, and a, a willingness to just be bad at something. So that's the question I want to put to you. What are you bad at? What are you willing to be bad at? Well, I mean, the easy answer is that I'm a bad bike mechanic. Just broadly. <laughs> Just broadly. I'm, I'm like a 90% bike mechanic in the sense that I know how to do everything to 90% of a quality solution. Mm-hmm. But... But that last 10% turns out to be pretty important. So I'm I'm bad at that. And this is... I think what's interesting about it is that the bike isn't a complicated machine. Even a bicycle disc brake is not a complicated thing. 
but um, I'm willing to contest my, that. But please continue. <laughs> my attention span is yeah, exactly. Fluid goes in. Air is bad. It's not that complicated. And I'm not, you know, this is not me judging or chastising you because right. I couldn't get close to your sponge. I'm sure, uh, but. Um, but there is a process, right? And there is a way that it actually works. I, I recently fixed my uh, gas dryer, clothing dryer, mm -hmm. uh, which had stopped heating. And a dryer is also not a complicated machine. It's got belts that turn that thing around, and mm -hmm. it's got a thing that blows hot air in. And that's, mm -hmm. that is pretty much it. Um. It took me seven weeks to fix. <laughs> that sounds about and, like the pace that I'm at with uh, disc brakes. Yeah. 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 And and there was a lot of struggle and I threw some tools, definitely. Um, but there is this thing that happens in the process of understanding and then eventually solving that is really magical. Yeah. And I, I so much related to your, you are talking about the stages earlier, because I was riding just yesterday, and my riding has not been its sharpest, really, in all of the last two years. Mm -hmm. Was it, in 2020, I broke my collarbone, and uh, when I came back from that, I was tentative, because I didn't really feel, I had dealt with frozen shoulder, so the injury went on, like... You know, like the collarbone mended itself in six, six or eight weeks, but then my shoulder wasn't right for another four or five months. Mm -hmm. um, and I did some riding then, but it was riding with the sense that like if I fall off, that's going to be really bad. <laughs> there's there's no minor crash. So my riding was all dialed back and super conservative. And then last winter, I got through a ski season and I didn't really ride uh, through the winter on the bike like I normally would. Uh, and then I came back to it this year and I just haven't been, I've just never gotten back to the, the technical level and confidence that I had before. Um, and I'm still probably, I'm still definitely not there, but I'm, I'm getting much closer. I'm seeing a lot of improvement. And yesterday was the day where we went out and I'm riding a hardtail and, and the guy on the front's riding a full suspension and he's going for everything. And I'm thinking to myself, I need to push. I need to struggle <laughs> uh, to put it in your terms. I need to struggle with some of these technical descents and, you know, uh, these obstacles and you know i would say the first quarter of the ride was me struggling i wasn't really frustrated but i wasn't really on it yet uh, mm -hmm. but then it did it did come around like i found my rhythm which is i think that that um what was the middle phase uh there's uh <laughs> relaxation <laughs> yes sorry i i, I after struggle, I did get to relaxation and I found some rhythm and I was able to let the brakes go and just uh, rail some descents and come into some obstacles at the right speed rather than tentatively. And then I did have kind of a flow where I was doing things that I haven't done in a long time, uh, you know, 
going over big rocks and coming off the other side and really getting it done. And it wasn't all the way there, but it was as close to like a flow state on a mountain bike as I've been in, in, in a while. Mm. Um, and it's, I mean, it is super nice. It is super nice. And it's, I, I have read West of Jesus and I've read the, uh, the follow-up book, which was, is it Rise Finding Superman. Superman? The Rise of Superman. What's that? The Rise, the Rise of, of Superman. Superman. Right. Yeah. So I am aware of like the ingredients that go into flow. And I do, when I'm out there, I do, I am conscious of like, all right, what do I need to do to cultivate that? You know, I need to get on the edge of my ability a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, and hope hope that it catches fire, so to speak. Um, <laughs> well put. Yeah, but I'm bad at I'm bad at lots. I'm a very bad skier. Uh, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I'm I a very bad I skier. That would and be I very s- bad. Yeah, I'm a bad downhill skier, and I ski with some very good skiers, and that's very difficult for me. And um, it is hard to work through the process as a 50 year old of like becoming a better technical athlete but uh it's what i love to do so i'm gonna keep at it very cool very cool thanks yeah um yeah. all righty well let's move on to paceline picks what do you have this week this week i'm picking the craft siberian 2.0 glove um this comes in a split finger version um and a full fingered version i prefer the latter because i really like having that level of dexterity when i ride but um the split mm-hmm. finger is likely a little warmer it, is um, it is it lobster style where it's uh you know uh index and middle and then ring and little or is it index separated from middle ring little it's uh lobster so it's no okay. it's two and like two spock spock Live yeah like the sleaze stacks yes yes sleaze stacks yeah sleaze stack style i wish someone would make that glove and call it the sleaze stack um and any company out there taking that uh idea i'll get you my address for the royalty check Anyway, you've heard me complain about cold weather gloves for years now, and the Siberian, despite its name, doesn't really go below 25 Fahrenheit, but it is absolute magic between there and about 40, which is, you know, which is the winter sweet spot. Yeah, I mean, unless you live in Lithuania, you know, most cyclists are going to kind of tap out at about 20 to 25 degrees. Yeah. If not yeah. sooner. I but do. Yeah. I do have a range. I mean, I will, whatever. No one wants to hear about what I do. <laughs> I, I've learned recently that uh, the initial chill and numbness you get in your extremities in the cold isn't entirely about your apparel. Mm-hmm. The body does this autonomic thing, a brainstem level action called vasoconstriction. Yes. Basically, your brain detects cold and constricts your blood vessels to keep the core warm. Mm-hmm. And that leads to your extremities feeling cold, obviously. It's not until your core temperature rises, like once you've warmed up, that vasoconstriction eases and allows warm blood back into the hands and feet. So if you go out and it's super cold and you have on gloves and you your extremities are cold, you know, it, it, it may just be that your neck is cold and your body's like, we detect a threat. Yes. 
to the core, and so we're shutting flow out to the outer colonies. Um, anyway, so that means that the, the initial cold you feel is a bit of a red herring uh, when it comes to evaluating gloves, socks, shoes, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Having said all that, here are a few of the things I love about the craft Siberian. It's warm, but not too warm in its temperature range. So it breathes pretty well. Like, I seldom sweat it out. You know, I seldom get to that point where I want to have a glove on because it's the air temperature is cold, but I'm bathed in sweat. So I don't experience that much, which is nice. But even if I do, this glove launders really well, Mm. right? It's all soft fiber. So it goes through the washer and the dryer and comes out in good shape. Wow. Uh, You even throw it in the dryer. I do. I throw it. I do the full cycle. Um, Maybe that's why you had to fix your dryer. (laughs) Could be. (laughs) Unlike my dryer, these gloves are durable as hell. (laughs) I have beaten the living daylights out of my latest pair, which is not the 2.0. I think it's still the 1.0. And this is my second pair. Um, So I've had these for six or seven years, and I, I just ride them... All all winter long, I will ski in them occasionally. I shovel snow in them. They're a bit frayed and raggedy now, as you would expect. I'm pretty hard on my stuff, but they have plenty of life left. Mm. And given how I use them, I think that's super impressive. Also, they have a good capacity for snot wiping. Oh, uh, which is yeah, which is a major need. People don't write about this in their uh, marketing copy very much, but I think they should. Some of the newer gloves force you to wipe your nose on this kind of micro suede nonsense. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm with you, you a thousand percent. As yeah. if micro suede is absorbent. Exactly. You think like, oh, that's soft. It's going to be okay. But actually, no, I've just smeared snot across my face with this yeah, thing. Now my face is glossy. Yeah. yeah. And cold. Well, uh, I mean, yeah. riddle me this. Who makes towels out of micro suede? Right. Zero people do that. No, yeah. No one. Yeah. Yeah. Terry cloth. I think there's something in in the product manager's mind where they're like, I don't want this glove inundated with snot. And my feeling is that snot's got to go somewhere, man. To me, that's about 30% of the duty of a glove. Yeah. Is being able to wipe your face. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think micro suede is, is useless. I have a pretty runny nose, so, you know, draw what conclusions you will. But I think a major uh, uh, benefit of the Craft Siberian 2 is my ability to get my nose wiped. Finally, Mm. gloves can be expensive, and I've dropped a lot of money on gloves in my day. Cold weather gloves climb into triple figures pretty quickly. Like mm-hmm. you're not getting a serious pair of downhill ski gloves under a hundred bucks. It's not going to happen. <laughs> right. These gloves are sixty five dollars. Yeah, that's craft for you. Yeah, it's a screaming deal. High value, uh, high quality, no bells or whistles. Just a good place to uh, wipe the snot off your face and keep your hands warm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. As I said, under 25. What's that? But I'm just agreeing. That's all. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Under 25 Fahrenheit, you're going to need to make an alternate plan. 
uh, whatever plan you make probably won't be entirely adequate, especially uh, if you want to shift the bike that you're riding. But uh, in the most active winter range here, which is between 25 and 40, the Kraft Siberian is a lights out glove. That's really cool. Yeah. There's yeah. something to be said for any company that <clears throat> plays in the uh, Nordic skiing apparel space. Yeah. If, if you're going to make yeah, Nordic like, ski apparel, I I, you've I, got I, to have figured stuff out. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I'm, I'm a little bit, <clears throat> I have to confess, of a craft fanboy uh, just lately because I do think they, they make such practical, affordable stuff. <laughs> you know, you can spend yeah. a lot on, on this stuff um, and you can get a lot for your dollar, I guess. But I'm a big fan of stuff that does exactly as much as you want it to do and nothing extra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100% and I think Kraft really nails that. This glove is a great example. Cool. My pick this what week do you got? is for anyone looking for a Christmas gift for a kid who likes bikes or for an adult who has an agenda to want to make a kid like bikes. <laughs> <laughs> I do approve of that agenda. I don't approve of many agendas, yeah. but that is one I'm on board with. So this is a book that I've actually uh, previously mentioned called Born to Ride, which was written by Larissa Chul. I think that's how you say it. T-H-E-U-L-E and illustrated by Kelsey Garrity Riley. In Victorian times, men would insult women by saying that if they rode, they would get bicycle face. That is, they tried to claim that women who rode bikes would have their face freeze into a grimace of exertion. Can I just make a blanket statement that I am still amazed that men are saying stupid things to women of this order? I mean, we really, yeah. as a species, uh, we haven't improved much. Uh, so one of the reasons I, I, you know, there's a certain societal relevance to the, to this book, even now, <laughs> uh, yeah. born to ride is set in Victorian times. And it's about a girl who discovers her bicycle face is not this grimace of exertion, but is one of joy and freedom. Uh, the book's available in hardcover, uh, from Abrams and goes for 1795, which for, uh, a hardcover picture book is really not a bad price. Um, I've read the book to my boys and they loved it. And I was especially happy with that because I'm a fan of any story that shows women for what they are, which is capable. Uh, sure. There will be a link in our show notes. All righty. That's a wrap on another episode of the Pace Line. Um, are you going to be riding in snow or is the snow supposed to melt or what? Uh, this snow is going to melt in typical New England fashion. It's going to be mid-60s, uh, I think, at the weekend. Wow. Um, I have... I, I find myself in a curious situation. I, as some listeners will know, I have a trail running uh, habit <laughs> as well as a trail riding habit. And I have signed up for uh, the Yeti Trail Runners 12 Days of Christmas, where you get... 12, on 12 consecutive days, you get a random uh, assignment, which mm. could be running or it could be reading a book or it could be it's kind of a 
you know, you just don't know until the day uh, what each task is. But the complication I have is that I have a colonoscopy scheduled for the middle of it. And I'm uh, I'm a little I'm a little concerned that they're going to be like, run a trail half marathon tomorrow morning. Uh, <laughs> right. When you're tethered to your bathroom. Yeah. 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 Uh, wow. Well, but that's just the kind of fun I love. <laughs> What about you? Um, well, you know, uh, I'm going to start getting out on uh, the fire roads in Annandale State Park, uh, perhaps as early as today, now that I have a fully functioning uh, gravel bike that I can trust uh, the brakes on descents with. Um, nice. Yeah, I'm still, you know, I'll be honest and say I'm still struggling with riding on the road after my uh, recent incident, which is... Uh, as yet entirely unresolved. Um, yeah. Yeah. Dealing with the the people responsible has been, mm, let's go with unpleasant. So, mm. yeah. Alrighty. Well, before we go, I want to put in a plug for Revolting, the podcast John does with uh, Steve Knievel of All Hail the Black Market. And uh, also, uh, a little reminder, uh, The Crash, uh, our other new podcast, has finally launched our first two episodes, one in which we introduce the podcast and what it's about, and then our very first interview, which was with Richard Sachs, Frame Builder. Um, those are both up on iTunes now. It's easy enough to find them. Um, the Crash is all about unexpected lessons and the silver linings uh, that come with falling off a bike. It's very much uh, more about the getting up than the falling down. Um Everybody keep those questions coming. You send us great stuff. If you've got an idea, please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Paceline.